Just a few weeks ago, oh, by the way, let me just stop. Mitch, that was awesome. Thank you for writing that song. <laughs> Praise band. Where'd Cheryl go? I don't see her. Okay. Praise band, Cheryl, all you, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That, is a, a, that was a blessing. Uh, that was an act and an offering of worship. So thank you. Thank you. As we began our sermon series a few weeks ago on 1 Peter, um, I, I introduced this concept of uh, what we call differentiated engagement. How are those who are called elect exiles to live in connection to the world? Being an elect exile within, within Peter's uh, letter here, uh, his first letter, to be an elect exile is one who is chosen and redeemed by God through Jesus, being elect by God, being an elect, uh, believing in Jesus, then makes that person an exile, a, a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner. And we talked a, a few weeks ago about this, this idea that uh, being an exile doesn't mean within Peter's letter that we have the, the right to sort of uh, disengage and retreat and, and set up some sort of uh, commune uh, in southern Alabama, nor does it mean that we are able to uh, just completely live like the world. We are to engage the world with this differentiated engagement. We, we maintain the differences that God makes in us because of Jesus, and yet we're good citizens. We, we pay our taxes. We're good neighbors. We, we mow our lawns because our, our neighbors sometimes might complain to the homeowners association, not that that's ever happened to anyone in here, We have a really great example of, of what, what I'm calling differentiated engagement. It's not my idea. It's, it's an author by the name of Karen Jobes. But we have a really great example of differentiated engagement in an early Christian letter. This letter was written in the late 2nd century. So about 180 years, maybe 150 years after Jesus lived and walked and talked and was crucified and was raised from the dead, this letter to Diognetus describes what it looks like to be a Christian in the world. And, and here about Christians, we read, with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet there is something extraordinary, extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but they labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for, their, for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. The Christians love all men, but the world hates the Christians, not because they have done it any wrong, but because they are opposed to its enjoyments. The second century letter, you can find it online, by the way. Just Google um, or do whatever you do to run an a, a internet search, a letter of Diognetus. Good luck spelling it. Um, <laughs> I've only read a small portion of it, but this reflects a truth revealed in Scripture in our passage from 1 Peter today and for next week, that believers in Jesus are set apart and live differently in the world, differently than the world around them, differently than, there are, than our neighbors. 
And in our passage that we're going to look at for today that, that Doug read for us, we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. And we're going to go for a while here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're, the, the whole passage goes to verse 3 of chapter 2, but we're going to cover part of it next week. So in our passage for today and for next week, St. Peter gives four commands. He gives four concrete expectations as to how it is that elect exiles are to live differently than the world around them. And in each case, this command, this expectation is set out based on the identity of who believers are because of God's work and grace. So basically, Peter says, God has made you this. Your response then is to live like this. The first two that we're going to look at today, uh, first found in verse 13, uh, the idea of setting our hope fully on the grace to come when Jesus comes again. And the second one that we'll look at today is found in verse 15, you also be holy in all your conduct. So, first things first, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first expectation Peter points out is where we are called, if we are believers in Jesus, where we are called to set our hope. And I should say this, to set our hope fully, not 75%. Not 98%, not like ivory soap, which is 99.9% pure. We are supposed to set our hope fully in Jesus as he is to come. But why? Well, that word therefore, as he begins this verse, is very important for us because therefore points us back to what Peter's already said in verses 3 through 12. Believers are to set their hope fully on Jesus coming because according to God the Father's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Because we're believers in Jesus, or if we are believers in Jesus, then we, as a response, an obedient response to God's great mercy that's caused us to be born again, we set our hope fully on what's to come, not what is happening now. Because uh, believers in Jesus have been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because believers have uh, received or will receive an inheritance that is kept in heaven by God, because believers are themselves guarded by God's power through their faith, we ought to set our hope on to what's to come, not what's happening now. Because of what God has done, and what God promises to do for those who believe in Jesus, believers are to set their hope fully on future grace, future grace that Jesus comes. What happens when Jesus comes? Well, what we read from Scripture is that when Jesus comes again, all things in this creation will be put under his feet. He will be king over all. He will rule all the heavens and the earth, as we see in the book of Revelation, will be recreated. The, the, the evil one, Satan, will be eternally uh, damned uh, into his, his final resting place, so to speak. Uh, Jesus will create on earth his kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, God's kingdom will indeed come when, when Jesus comes. And all those things that are sad and bad and wrong and evil will then be undone and recreated into rightness. That's what we're hoping for. 
That's what we're looking for. And at that time when Jesus does come, then that inheritance that God has, has given for us, set aside for us, that inheritance that God keeps for us in heaven will be bestowed upon us. There will be no evil. The sin will never will not be in existence. And, and, and things will be as they were intended to be in the garden. Fellowship between God the Creator and His creation because sin is banished forever. That's grace, that's future tense, and that's the hope that we're supposed to set ourselves fully upon. And that is completely different than what the world tells you to hope in. So you, everything that, that Peter here tells us to do, commands that he has us do, because we're elect exiles, indeed mark us out even further as weirdos, as strangers, as aliens. Thank you. Preach it, sister. That's my mother-in-law. Somebody's got to support me. I'm just waiting for Thelma to break out with, Help him, Jesus! Just waiting on that one. Help him, Jesus. To set our hope on a future grace to come is absolutely strange. It is absolutely different. It is foreign and it is alien to the society and culture in which we live. Peter has already said in chapter 1, verse 8, that this future grace is dependent upon Jesus, whom these folks love, but they haven't seen him, and who these folks trust, though they haven't seen him. We live in a world that really says, I'll believe it when I see it. I want something real and hard and concrete in my hand rather than, than real and future. We are not a delayed gratification society any longer. Amazon Prime is not fast enough for me. I don't want to wait two days. Their world essentially says, I'll believe it when I see it, and places hope, tells us, teaches us, indoctrinates us to place hope in education or money or success or possessions or sex or the government or in a whole host of other things. It takes an act of the will to intentionally go against the grain and hope in future grace that comes with Jesus. I'll just give you an example. Uh, when I started uh, university at Oklahoma State, I went, yes, go Pokes, I went, I went to, to be a political science major to do pre-law because I wanted to be a lawyer, right? And I figured, I get that, I figured, hey, I get that and I'm set. I won't have to come back and work on the farm and get dirt under my fingernails. I won't have to, I'll be set. So I was hoping in that. And then I started taking constitutional law classes. And while I found uh, the, 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 the actual work exciting and sort of fulfilling, I found the hypocrisy of it all to be absolutely dumbfounding, and I decided to be a history major. Yeah, go history. So now I've set my hope not in that degree, but in a different degree. And you know what I found out when I graduated after cramming four years into five from Oklahoma State University with a history degree? You know what I found out? I had no job. It was good for me to get to graduate school, which was good for me to get more debt, right? So you see how the world teaches us hope in this, but when you achieve that, what you find out is that you're not really fulfilled. You've got no completion, Nothing the world has to offer, even the good things, a college degree, being a lawyer, being a history professor, uh, nothing the world has to offer that it promises to fulfill us, our basic needs, can really do that. And so if we're looking, if we're placing our hope in how many notches we have on the bedpost because we've been so promiscuous in our lives looking for fulfillment, that's just going to lead us to death. 
And if we, if we think that the money that we have is going to uh, fulfill us, we're hoping on what's in our wallet. I got nothing in my wallet that's going to last beyond my own demise. I'll be honest, I got nothing in my wallet that's going to last beyond this afternoon. <laughs> but everything the world, and so it takes this, 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 this hard set of mind to intentionally say to the world, no. I am not going to buy in to that which you say is good and right and, and will fulfill me. Rather, I'm going to set my hope on that which is to come when everything will be undone and remade by Christ the King. It takes an intentional mindset. And I think this is why Peter in verse 13 says, Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. That idea of preparing your minds for action, you may see it in, in maybe a footnote in some of your scriptures, but it literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. And back in the ancient world where everybody wore dresses because everybody wore robes, right? Back in those days, for someone to run, a, a, a man had to grab up their robe, and for those of you listening on podcast, I'm currently girding up my alb, showing off my bare legs because it's hotter than the gates of hell outside and I've got shorts on. <laughs> but you have to gird, I didn't plan on doing this, you have to gird up, right, and now you're ready to run. So I have created for myself a pair of shorts or perhaps man prees, showing off my stylish, right, so now I'm girded up. You have to take the action. It doesn't just happen. And there's not enough bleach in the world to blot out that which I have shown you for your brains. <laughs> Be sober-minded. Prepare your minds. Make the effort. Hitch up your robes and prepare to run. Not towards what the world tells you, but towards what God has given you. That's what Peter is saying. The very first thing that Peter tells us, the very first thing that elect exiles are to do differently than the world around them is hope differently. Confident expectation that what God has said will happen will indeed happen because Jesus died and rose again. That living hope from verse 3 of chapter 1. Believers in Jesus are set apart to live differently in this world, in the first case, because of what they hope upon or in. Secondly, and I know you guys are thinking, holy smokes, he's been preaching for 45 minutes already, and he's only covered one verse. Let's look at chapter, let's look at 14 through 21. The second expectation, the second command that, that Peter lays out for believers in Jesus is this. Believers in Jesus are to be holy as God the Father is holy, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Anybody else have their knees kind of knocking together a little bit? You know, when we talk about God being holy and, and his expectation that his people will reflect his character, that's a little frightening, as it should be, as it should be. You know, first thing to notice, I think, in verse 14 is that, that this, is not, uh, this is not a polite suggestion. 
This is not Peter saying, you know, if you think about it, if you feel moved in your spirit to be obedient to the Father as a child, then maybe you should think about being holy. No, no, no. With all the apostolic authority that Peter has, being one selected and sent out by Jesus to be an apostle, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy because God has told you to be holy. Peter continues to proclaim just how different believers in Jesus are to the world around us. He clearly states that they are different in how they were as well. There's a difference between what these believers were before they believed in Jesus and what they are after they believed in Jesus. They were prior to believing in Jesus. They were conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. They were a little bit later on sort of trapped into slavery to the futile ways inherited from their father. Do not be conformed to that any longer, Peter says. Leave those things behind, Peter says, and be the one that God has made you to be. Utterly different, transformed, changed, be holy. Knowing, he says, that you were ransomed, in verse 18, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why are we to be holy? Because you were bought at a price, and it wasn't cheap. You can always tell how serious a fire is by the number of firemen and fire trucks that respond to the call. You can tell how serious sin is by the cost that was paid to forgive it. God paid the ransom price to free slaves to sin, to adopt sinners as sons and daughters, and that price was the precious, priceless blood of Jesus the Christ. Because you were redeemed, the expectation, Peter writes, is that you will be obedient to the God who redeemed you, who ransomed you. Because you were adopted to be a child of the Father, the expectation is to be obedient to the Father. And obedience looks like holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Well, in reference to God, Holiness is one of those attributes, one of those character traits that, that infuses every aspect of his being. When we say that God is loving, we're saying that God is holy in his loving. When we say that, that God is omnipotent in his knowledge, we say that God is also holy in his knowledge. It, 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 so that everything that God is and everything that God does is holy and everywhere that God is present is holy. His presence makes things different. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses wandered around, saw this burning bush, thought, hey, that's pretty weird. I'm going to check that out. And then he hears this voice that says, where you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because Moses was there? No. No, come on. We know Moses. Was it holy because the sheep were there? No, sheep are stupid. Not holy. Was it holy because the bush was? No, the, it was holy because God was there. And what holy means in the very heart of the word is that set apart, other than. 
And so God as holy is completely other than the stuff of his creation. We use this word transcendent, which means God is above and beyond. God uh, is the creator of and as the potter is to the clay. He is different than that which he creates. He's set apart. He's other in his very being. But God is also, as we use the word holy, uh, God is also good and pure and righteous. There's two sides to holiness. One, God's being, and two, God's activity. God always does the right thing in the right way, at the right time, with the right motivation, and for the right goal, according to his standard of right. And God expects, this is where it gets a little scary, God expects his people, those he has made his children through Jesus, to be like him. To be set apart other than, and to be pure, good, and righteous. We're supposed to be a chip off the old block. Like father, like son, and like father, like daughter. Now here's the thing that we have to recognize because, quite frankly, if we talk about God's holiness, we would probably all go home and crawl into bed and sip our favorite beverage because, quite frankly, folks, we cannot be holy. I know myself well enough to know the the, the links and the manner to which I can justify and rationalize a whole sort of behavior that God would probably not smile upon. We can't be holy. We can't even stand up to our own measurement of righteousness, much less God's measurement of righteousness. The really good news is that God wants his people to be holy, and so God does everything his people need for them to be holy. The really good news is that in Jesus, because of Jesus, by grace, through faith, believers in Jesus are accounted as righteous as Jesus' righteousness is credited to them. The really good news is that this changes their being. No longer stuck in the passions of former ignorance, now delivered out of the futile ways, believers in Jesus are holy because God, through Jesus, has made them and declared them to be holy. And if I can't get an amen on that, that's the gospel. That God does for sinful humans what they cannot do. And this changes who we are. It changes our being. So God does that one part. He he makes us holy. But there's always this second side to holiness. Just as God is actively holy, he expects his people to be actively holy. He expects his people to be and do good according not to the world's standard of goodness, but according to his standard of goodness in obedience, motivated by his grace and obedience, motivated by reverent fear of him, the judge. As Peter states, believers in Jesus call upon him as father who is the impartial judge. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our Savior. But it, gets, it gives me the creeps when I see pictures that say Jesus is my homeboy because it's a little too personal. You know what I mean? 
It breaks down this barrier between God, the transcendent one, who is our father, who is our redeemer, but is also our judge. And so I like the way that uh, C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan, the lion, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. Aslan, he's not safe. He is good, but he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. That's the way we ought to approach God the Father. The Holy One who is judge is the Redeemer through Jesus' blood, is the Father, is the one before whom we should stand in reverent fear just simply because of who He is. The one who called all things into existence. Believers in Jesus are set apart to live differently in this world, to be holy. And this principle, this principle of holiness to God being set apart for God, by God, and in God, and being set apart for good things, good works, that is what essentially makes believers in Jesus foreigners, resident aliens, and exiles. Being set apart means believers in Jesus are transformed by God, not conformed to the world. If we start to notice similarities between the church and the world, I can guarantee you it is not because the world is becoming more holy. If we start to see similarities in in meaningful ways between the church and the world, more than likely it is because the church has perceived the winds of the cultural shift, wanted to keep their budgets high with butts in the seat to protect their buildings, and so made an alteration in the tradition of the church and in biblical theology. And so what's happened then is the world has corrupted the church, conformed. The church has allowed itself to be conformed to the thinking of this world, to the passions of the former ignorance. Being holy means believers in Jesus have different priorities, different values, different beliefs, different customs, and different morals in the culture around them. Believers in Jesus think differently and act differently. It is important for believers and for churches and the church to say to the world, we do not accept nor do we endorse this sin, not because we hate you, but because God has his standard and we will obey God. We love you. Here's a sandwich and here is the gospel. It is not hate to be holy. And perhaps we ought to recognize that God has a standard of holiness, a standard of ethical and moral behavior within his creation because he knows what is best for his people because he knows how to best be human. Perhaps God names sin as sin because sin is brokenness and it seems as though God desires for broken and sinful humans to be made whole by him in Jesus. And believers are set apart to continue to make known God's standard. But we cannot ignore the positive or the active aspect of holiness, the the aspect of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good and to be righteous in action. We cannot ignore active holiness because it too is part and parcel with who God is. It is not enough for the church, capital C Church, to be like Statler and Waldorf, those grumpy Muppets just hanging out in their press boxes and proclaiming this play is terrible. 
It is not enough for the church, capital C Church, to be Statler and Waldorf. Look it up on YouTube. To be Statler and Waldorf to proclaim this world's going to hell in a handbasket and do absolutely nothing about it. It's not enough. What would it look like if the church, capital C Church, the church universal, what would it look like if the church was as invested in living holy lives in the cities and neighborhoods in which they are found than they were in electing the right person. What would it look like? Every four years, we go through this cycle in which we're looking for a single individual to be elected to a single office in this country who's going to pass a bunch of laws to straighten everything out. Folks, if we're placing our hope in a single individual in a single office, I don't care what party they are, we're placing our hope in the wrong thing. What would it look like if the church was more invested in what we could call individual justice? Of course, it is important to elect leaders who are competent, who are consistent, and who have character that to vote for them will not violate your own conscience. Of course, it is important to work to correct systemic corruption, to undo immoral laws, and to pass moral ones. But folks, we cannot legislate morality. Laws can't change hearts. And sometimes we rely too much on a government to do what only God can do. So only God can change hearts. Only God can change hearts, and he's given his church, the capital C Church, an important and necessary role in the business of changing hearts. Living holy lives, witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ, loving our neighbors as ourselves, seeking the good of the city in which we live, differentiated engagement, personal and face-to-face. When it comes to the myriad social issues that face us and our culture today, let's just take the issues of life and issues of race to name only two. Perhaps the best thing that we can do is to remember the words of the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. If we want to see racism dead in America today, we must first kill it in the church, capital C. And by implicating capital C, I mean lowercase c as well. If we see abortion abolished, it won't be because a law is passed, but because the very horror of abortion becomes unwanted because hearts have been changed by the gospel to see life through the prism of God's eyes and not through the prism of the eyes that say a baby with a heartbeat is not a baby at all. These are all active holiness things exhibited in God in the life of Jesus and expected of God's people. We continue to say no to the moral degradation of our culture and our society, but God wants us also to be a people who are holy, seeking justice in the face of injustice on a personal, face-to-face, neighbor-to-neighbor level. To love and to be kind to others, to be humble before him. What does it look like to live a holy life in the neighborhood in which you live? What does it look like to live a holy life on the university campus where you study, in the city where you live, starting with our neighbors, neighborhoods, and cities, and moving out from there. 
It seems as though this is directly applicable to us. Justice for the unborn, justice in the face of racism, love and kindness to neighbors, humility before God. That's holiness. God's people are set apart for holiness. And as we began this morning, so we end with a portion from a letter to Diognetus. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. Christians love those who hate them just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by the Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place, and Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function, from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. Believers in Jesus are set apart to live differently, hoping in different things, living holy lives to the glory of God. I've said this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.